You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien, nurse practitioner, and I'm here today with Dr. Annie Andrews. She is a pediatrician in Charleston, South Carolina, and is actually running for Congress. Um, and so I just thought it would be a really super interesting conversation. I'm, I can't wait to hear. I mean, she's doing all the things simultaneously, uh, doctoring, wifing, momming, and working. So I'm I'm thrilled to have you and thank you so much for taking what I know is um, precious time to come and come and chat. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, tell, will you just tell everybody just kind of your background, how you got into medicine, how you chose pediatrics and just a little bit about kind of you and who you are? Yeah, sure. So I actually knew I was going to be a doctor when I was in preschool and I had no idea where I got the idea. I didn't know any doctors at yeah. the time except for my own. Um, but when I was four and a half in preschool one day, I told my teacher that when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor and a mom with three kids. And I know that because that day she wrote down what I said and I drew a picture and it was in a book I gave to my mom. And now I have that picture hanging in my office at, um, at my job. That's and so awesome. I just knew from a very, yeah, I just... I was always just on that path to be a doctor. It was just what I wanted to do. And I worked really hard, to, obviously, to achieve that goal. I didn't necessarily know I was going to be a pediatrician right away. Uh -huh. But the very first day I stepped foot in a children's hospital, I felt at home. I loved being surrounded by the care team members who work at children's hospitals, the patients who can range from newborn babies to teenagers, all of their families who are there at their side, you know, helping them get through whatever illness they have. And I just, you know, children are so brave and so resilient and it is a very positive atmosphere to work in most of the time. And so I just fell in love with the idea of being a pediatrician, specifically a pediatrician that works at a children's hospital. Mm -hmm. So I work here at the children's hospital in Charleston where I've worked since 2009 and I absolutely love my job. I love the variety. I love the challenges. Um, and I've been really happy in my career. And honestly, you know, you mentioned I'm running for Congress and that was never part of my plan. It was not something I thought about 10 years ago. It's not yeah. something I dreamed of doing when I was a child. Honestly, if you had told me 18 months ago, I'd be sitting here doing this, I wouldn't have believed you. But there's just a series of events that happened in my life that led me to this decision to jump into this race and run for office. That is wild. I, I mean, you had 18 months. I'm like, gosh, you would think you would have been thinking about it for a few years, but um, that's so that's so fast. So I'd love to hear about that. And it's funny, I you're you're obviously called to be a pediatrician. So my I have two pediatricians in my family, my dad and my brother, who actually trained with you some in residency, but. I, I thought I wanted to do pediatric, you know, nursing, nurse practitioners in some way. And so I did all my rotations in the ped setting. And I was like, actually, I, this is not my jam like this. I can't do this. And I don't know if it was because it was so emotional sometimes or 
I don't know. I couldn't, I, I can't explain it, but I even dropped the family portion of the nurse practitioner program that I was doing and just did adult. Cause I was like, I don't even want to have kids as a possibility in my scope of practice. Like I, mm-hmm. I know I'm was not really meant to, to care for children. And, and so you are, you're a hospital based pediatrician. So you're not like going to an office doing sick and well visits. You're, you're taking care of kids who are in the hospital. That's correct. Yeah. I'm a pediatric hospitalist, so I only see patients who are admitted to the hospital and it's a nice range of, you know, previously healthy kids who are, you know, Mm -hmm. newborns who have high bilirubin levels or, you know, a four-year-old with pneumonia or eight-year-old with diabetes and then lots of children with complex chronic conditions who come in and out of the hospital for complications. And so it really is I get to see the whole breadth of the field of pediatrics and the whole breadth of the age range of pediatrics. And it's funny that you say that, that you thought you'd be drawn to pediatrics and then you weren't. And I sort of was this opposite. Like I was growing up, I wasn't like the girl who always babysat or like always drawn to children, but professionally, it just felt like, it just felt like the right place for me to be. It's super interesting. And I do, I think you have to feel that way um, and, and be able to interact with children in, in that way. And children are not little adults. I've heard my dad say that 1 million times, like children are not just small adults, you know, and it's, it's different. And then, then there's the family (laughs) dynamic and all it's just, it's, it's a lot. I think pediatrics is really special field. And, um, as we all know, highly underpaid and and undervalued, but that's another episode for, you know, another time. But anyway, um, so what, (laughs) what were the series of events that, that led you to say just recently, you know what, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. So it's really these two parallel tracks my life has taken, which is one, my professional life working Mm -hmm. in a children's hospital for over a decade. And then the other as a mom of three kids. So Mm -hmm. I have three kids who are 10, seven and five. Uh-huh. So if I think about sort of the professional reasons that I'm doing this, you work, you know, you work in the healthcare setting. And so you kind of understand what I'm going to describe to you. But as a pediatrician who works in a children's hospital, every single day I'm at work, I see the problems that children and families in my community are facing. And a lot of those problems are addressable. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about kids who are alone in their hospital rooms because their parents have multiple jobs because they don't have a living wage. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I'm talking about, you know, kids who come into the hospital and it's clear that they don't have enough food to eat at home. Kids who can't access the internet in their home. So when we all locked down for COVID, they fell further behind their peers. Right. I've cared for so many children in an in- at an increasing rate over the past two years who are, you know, having mental health crises. And their parents have been trying to access mental health resources in our community, but we just don't have enough Right. Child health care professionals in our community and so many communities in this country. And then, you know, one of the real driving issues for me was the children I've cared for who have been shot. Yeah. Because when you think about a career in pediatrics, you think about the things I was talking about earlier. You think about pneumonia, dehydration, jaundice, yeah. um, you know, diabetes, seizures, like all the things that you learn about when you go through your pediatric rotations. And in reality, I see so much mental health problems in so many children who have been shot. And it ranges from children who are struggling with depression, who have used a firearm to harm themselves, or young preschool age children who access an unsecured firearm in their own home, think it's a toy, pick it up and pull the trigger and hurt themselves or someone in their family. And then, you know, in communities across this country, 
particularly where I live in South Carolina, you know, we have incredibly high community gun violence rates. And so these are teenagers who are, you know, just find themselves in a situation where they get shot. And understanding the data that tells us that gun violence is now the leading cause of death for children in this country. As a pediatrician and a mom, that just did not sit well with me. I saw that on your website. And I, I that when did that change? Because for I feel like forever, it was um, just accidents like, you know, car accidents or four wheelers right. or, or whatever. And so is that kind of a recent shift? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it actually changed in 2019. Gun okay. violence eclipsed motor vehicle collisions Ugh. to become the leading cause of death for children and young adults in this country. And it is, if you look at the like the line graphs of it and you watch motor vehicles, motor vehicle collisions, over the past 20 years, there's just been this precipitous drop in the number of children who have died from car accidents, which is amazing. Like that like is so more fantastic. More car seats and we're but making think them about- wear seatbelt, um, what are they called? Boosters right. for till they're like eight. I, mean, I would think maybe that's the reason. But. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's there's like government regulation on how cars need to be built, what seatbelts need to be like. We have right. so much public education, public facing education from pediatricians and public health departments about car seat ages and safety and, you right. know, stop signs and all the things we do to make the roads safer. Right. And it's worked. Fewer <laughs> kids are dying from car accidents. But over the same time period, we have done almost nothing to address pediatric firearm injuries. And because of the those two, that discrepancy, the lines have crossed. And Gosh. now gun violence is the number one cause of death for children in the United States. And that's because we have not treated it like a public health crisis. Every time gun violence is brought up in many circles, it's immediately thought to be a political conversation when it should right. not be. It should be a medical public health conversation. Okay. When you say gun violence too, it, I my mind goes to teenagers shooting like gangs, like teenagers shooting other teenagers. But when you say gun violence, can that be accidental shootings? Like you're talking about, you know, the kids thinking it was a toy or, I mean, those stories are just unreal or just accidental, you know, not, I've read about teenagers, kids that don't realize that a gun can kill someone and, you know, shooting, whether the shooting was on purpose, but anyway, does all that kind of get, get lumped into gun violence or are we talking about like kid, kid on kid gun violence? Yes. So you're, yeah, you're exactly right. When we hear the phrase gun violence, often we think about what you're talking about, which is what I would consider community gun violence. Okay. But gun violence really, you know, firearm suicides are gun violence. Okay. Unintentional shootings where children access unsecured firearms are gun violence. So when we use the phrase gun violence, we mean all of that. And if you look at the, um, if you look at children specifically, the majority of these deaths from firearms are the community gun violence deaths. They're homicides. About a third really? of pediatric firearm deaths are suicides. Yes. I'm like, who? Yeah, what so is the, happening? That is shocking. I mean, really, right. like that is yeah, shocking I mean, to me. It's those types of shootings and deaths are not covered by the media all the time. You know, you have to go digging for these stories or these headlines. And often these young adults and children who die from community gun violence, you know, it's not talked about because it is pretty normal, you know, on a given weekend in Charleston for some teenagers to get shot. And we have become a little bit numb to it. Well, yeah. Cause I'm like, you just said it's pretty normal every weekend. I'm like, I don't, I can't remember the last time I read about teenagers shooting each other. I mean, mm-hmm. do they just stop covering it? Cause it's like, well, 
I mean, probably the same as mass shootings. I mean, there were, you know, what was it last weekend that there were 10 people, you know, a racially motivated shooting in, what was it, Jersey? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I saw very, very little, very little coverage. I mean, and I, I don't know, I feel like I'm on Twitter and I watch the news sometimes and I just, I, I really right. didn't see much about it. And I think there were three others that same weekend. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you can't keep up with the mass shootings that we experience in this country. And for those of us like me, who've never lived in a different country, like you don't realize how abnormal this is, you know, right. when people from Canada, people from the UK see what's happening here. They are shocked, you know, right. New Zealand had that one horrific mass shooting and literally within days, they had really, laws, really yeah. aggressive gun sense laws passed. And here we are, so many years after Sandy Hook, so many years after Parkland, all of our communities experience daily gun violence, and our political leaders don't have the will to act. And that issue has become you know, really central to my work Mm -hmm. because it's such an injustice to the children in this country that they have to grow up. And I like to talk when I'm talking to rooms of moms like me, I like to talk about even if, you know, you feel like you're in a safe neighborhood and you haven't maybe lost someone to gun violence, all of our children are affected by it because they are doing lockdown drills in their classrooms. Yeah. And that is because our elected officials yeah. don't have the will to act. And we are putting that burden on our kids. Our kids should have the freedom to go to school without fear of a bad man coming in the building. Our children in kindergarten shouldn't be learning to write on the same desk they're learning to hide under right. in a lockdown drill. And to me, that is the that is what I want to get across, that this is affecting all of us and our failure to act on this, we're just passing this burden down to our children and it doesn't need to be that way. And it's, it's interesting, you know, I read, I was reading your website and you you basically said, Hey, listen, if you're a legal gun owner, I'm not interested. And in, and in if you're, you know, storing your guns the right way, cool, great. Like good, good for you. And I, so I mm-hmm. wonder, but there's, there seems to be always kind of this underlying or very outward facing message of, if we have more gun control, like they're going to take our guns away. But where does that even come from? I don't think I've ever heard a politician say we need to ban guns. I mean, maybe assault rifles, which I, you know, I understand. And there probably is an appropriate legal way channel, whatever for for those to, to exist. I don't know, but I don't understand why people think they're going to literally get their guns taken away. What, what, Where's that coming from? So if you've been following Dabbleco and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. 
BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. So to be completely frank, it's coming from the NRA. I mean, the NRA has for decades had an incredibly sophisticated, um, I mean, I'm going to call it propaganda um, machine that has infiltrated our political system that causes people to think that, that if a Democrat is in the White House, that your guns are going to get taken away. But the fact is, there are so many more guns in America today than there were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So this idea that, you know, we had Barack Obama in the White House for eight years, everybody got more guns, nobody's guns got taken away, no one wants to take away anybody's guns. And you're Mm -hmm. exactly right. You know, I support the Second Amendment. You know, growing up, my grandpa was a big hunter in Western Kentucky, he had guns in his home that were securely stored, like I have absolutely no problem with people owning guns, I understand that that is their Second Amendment right. And frankly, like I have really little interest in guns or talking about guns. But what I do have an interest in is the patients I care for who have been shot. Children. Those are all preventable injuries. And I care about my kids in school not feeling safe. Yeah, it's, I mean, you see it, you see it firsthand. And I I think that's how so many political issues are is, you know, we have people debating these laws. I just finished doing a series about Roe versus Wade, which I won't drag you into today, unless you just really want, just really, really want the drama. We can go there, but, um, and it's like we've listen. We've got all these people making these laws who aren't seeing this day to day how it's actually affecting families. You know, the, the physicians who are caring for these patients and. Um, I, I read something one time, I can't remember who said it, but that was, it basically said, listen, if we don't have the day America decided that, that we're, we were okay with a group of, was it kindergartners or first graders at, at Sandy Hook? The day we decided that we're okay with first that. Graders. Yeah. First graders, um, is when you should have just kind of given up hope for gun control. Like if that's we're we're going to be okay mm-hmm. with that and tolerate that, then what, what else worse could happen? I mean, what's what's another worst case scenario that doesn't really exist in in my mind? So that's really frustrating to have mm-hmm. um, lawmakers who aren't yeah. you know involved in what what they're making laws about. Right, and I yeah, and I've seen that point being made. You know, after the next mass shooting, someone says, "Well, we didn't act after Sandy Hook, so of course we're not going to act now." But mm-hmm. the truth is, the landscape has changed. We haven't had that big watershed moment that so many of us who work in this space 
are hoping for, where we have really meaningful legislation passed at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But we are making progress in state houses all across the country and in boardrooms. You know, there's more engagement on this issue from big companies who, you know, support the movement. Yeah. I am a member of Moms Demand Action, which is the largest um, grassroots gun violence prevention organization in the country. And that movement is growing every single year. Uh-huh. And it is strong. And those women and men are incredibly passionate and motivated. And so I do have hope. I think we're going to reach a tipping point and the progress will be slow, but we are going to get past this. I, honestly, if if my generation doesn't do it, the next generation is going to do it. Because you see these kids, these kids who were, were at Parkland when the shooting happened, or, you know, kids who are speaking out on all different kinds of social injustices. Like, I truly believe that if, if we don't get it together and do what we need to do for the next generation, this next generation may be the one who really turns the tides on this issue and many other issues. Um, speaking of issues, I wanted to ask you, and this is not really, well, maybe it is, but okay. So what, what do you think about the formula shortage right now and what is kind of going on there with the FDA and the investigation and all of this shenanigans that were involved in that? I mean, how are you seeing that affect your patients yet? I mean, I would imagine at some point, kids or babies are going to start getting admitted for dehydration or for nutritional support if we can't quite literally feed them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll say as a mom and a pediatrician, it's really heartbreaking to think about these moms with newborns who maybe are trying to establish, you know, successful breastfeeding, but aren't having luck yet. And so they want to supplement or, they're unable to breastfeed or they've made the choice to formula feed. And now all of a sudden they find themselves in this, I can only imagine just incredibly stressful situation. So, you know, back when the plant closed because of the contaminated formula, you know, we immediately had sort of different brands available at the children's hospital, but never any, you know, need to like we were doing at the beginning of the pandemic with our PPE. It was never like that where we were like being really cautious with rationing formula to patients in the hospital, but yeah, rationing, there you go. So, I mean, you know, I think a confluence of things happened that got us to this point. And it is really unfortunate that we're at this point where this burden again is being put on these young mothers mm-hmm. who are having to scramble and go to all these great lengths to identify, to find formula for their babies. But, you know, it's, it's the supply chain disruption from the pandemic. It's this huge, you know, factory and Michigan that shut down and maybe we didn't act proactively enough to help them safely reopen in, you know, a more expeditious manner. Um, but it's these things sort of coalescing to the point where now, you know, you see all these pictures of empty shelves and I've gotten messages from moms I know who have, you know, infants who are on formula and it just breaks my heart. Right. But what, what, you know, aside from that specific issue, what really just really makes me mad is this immediate injection of politics into it, right? Like, how did we get away from, you know, we all send our elected officials to Washington to solve problems when, you know, this is a problem. This is a national emergency. So let's let our leaders solve this problem. But rather than doing that, they're just going to their partisan corners, right? Like there was just a bill last night to give the FDA some more money to help them figure this thing out. And the vote was essentially on party lines, like this is not a partisan issue. Feeding babies is not a partisan issue, but this, we've become so polarized that even something as basic as feeding babies 
is somehow now a partisan issue. And that's not how our government is was designed to work. And it's not helping anybody. And it's incredibly frustrating. Well, I, I was thinking too, so you're in for, and for those of y'all who are not necessarily in um, Dr. Andrews district. Okay. So she's in Charleston, South Carolina. And the person who had your seat two seats ago, Joe Cunningham, who's now running for governor. And then Nancy Mace got the seat. But I remember so specifically when Joe was in Congress and there were these like negative things being said about him because he was working with both sides. And I, I don't understand when that became a bad thing, but it's clearly at some point became, if you work with the other side, we're a hundred percent, we're going to use that against you. And so, I mean, do you fear that going, going to Congress when you're saying like, Hey, we, I want to work with you on gun control. Like I do have your guns. Let's keep the second amendment amendment. And you know, let's, why are we voting in this partisan way? But, but it's their repercussions. I mean, then it's like, let's say you win and you go, and then you, you have one term because you are trying to do the right thing and work together with Republicans and Democrats. I, I don't understand that. Do you have any, do you have concerns about that? I do. And that's kind of one of the first questions I asked Joe Cunningham when I was thinking about running, you know, was what was that like? Like, did you always feel pressure to vote in ways you were uncomfortable voting? And he said, uh -huh. actually, no. Um, I, I think that the problem is what we have in Washington right now, by and large, is career politicians. We have people who yeah. have been in Congress for decades, for longer than I've been alive, longer than you've been alive. Yeah. And of course, What's most important to those people is keeping their job and to keep their job, they have to keep their party happy. Yeah. I want to go to Congress and actually solve problems. I don't, you know, I'm not an ideologue. I'm not, you know, I don't have allegiance to the Democratic Party. Yes, I am a Democrat and I'm running on the Democratic ticket, but I don't have, you know, allegiance to the party leaders or, you know, I am up there and everyone should be to serve the people who elected you to be there and to solve problems. And right. it's helping no one, this stalemate that we're in where people are just voting by party lines. And I do think that there is more pressure and more bullying going on on the right where, you know, they are scared to take votes that the party tells them not to take. Mm -hmm. The district I'm running in is South Carolina's first district. It is an incredibly moderate district. So mm -hmm. when Joe Cunningham won it, he won by one point. When yeah. it went back to Nancy Mace, she won by one point. So this is a very moderate swing district. We don't want an ideologue up there. We don't want someone who's just going to be a rubber stamp for either party. We want someone who's going to vote in the best interest of their constituents. Mm -hmm. And that's what I will do. Um, but that's not what we're seeing. And, you know, the votes that even... Nancy Mace has taken over the past 24 hours. She voted against this, you know, this FDA baby formula bill last night. Right. And, you know, she just voted against a bill that would help control gas prices by holding the oil and gas companies accountable for price gouging. And those are party line votes. Those aren't votes that she came and said, guys, you know, hey, people in Charleston, what do you think is best? Those yeah. She's just voting with her party. And we're never going to make any progress. And that's not true representative government. And I just would like to insert here, this is not um, a political podcast, but also Nancy Mace, happy to have you on if you would like to talk about the other side of that, because I would love to know, other than, like you said, party lines, I mean, what what would make you say no to funding 
for baby formula. I, I, I don't understand. And she has kids as well. I think three, at least two, um, two or three kids. She's a mom. Um, so I, I just, I really can't, I can't imagine what would make a, a person shoot that down. Um, but obviously I, it's, mm-hmm. it's happening. I mean, so, right. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's a good question to ha- ask her and her colleagues that voted against it. And, you know, these bill often these bills are not really straightforward. You know, there's other things that are added to the bill. So it looks like you're voting against right. something, but five other things were added and you're uncomfortable with one of those. So, but some of these votes that have happened lately, like capping the cost of insulin, like that is all that bill did. Mm-hmm. And we still, you know, that, that was a party line vote as well. So um, I do think it's complicated. And I think, you know, giving folks who are taking these votes the opportunity to explain them would be helpful to all of us. I think what what we can do to you know, to turn the tide is to get more just regular people running for office. And, you know, we, I've, I've mentioned this a few times lately that I've been reflecting on, you know, my oldest is in fourth grade and in, at the last, the last election cycle in 2020, politics had infiltrated her classroom. I mean, she was, I guess, in fourth grade at the time. Mm -hmm. And, she knew like which party her friend's parents were in. And when I was in grade school, I had no idea. Like, I don't know that I knew the president was. not way into elementary yeah. school classrooms. No. No. I think right. I was and it's oblivious. Just, it's a, <laughs> totally oblivious. I, I probably was. I mean, I, yeah, I was too. And it's just a reflection of this polarization that we see because of social media and cable news, you know, on both sides, we just hear the extreme viewpoints. Right. And most of us are somewhere in the middle, but that's not being represented on social media and on cable news and even in news stories because, you know, the more extreme viewpoints get more clicks and likes and that's, that's where we are. But the the answer to that, in my opinion, is people like me, people who never had political aspirations, just stepping up and trying to like get more normal people with normal perspective on real problems that people face in office. So that you, is my message that's like, this will only be fixed if more people just jump in. Do you think they, they don't because of just the time or like, you? I mean, as a physician, you, you won't make as much money in, I mean, you'll take a, I think, pretty big pay cut to go work in Congress. Um, well, you'll have, I mean, well, this is another question. Will you still continue to practice some, I guess you, you'll be able to do that with a little bit more flexibility just because of the nature of the way you practice, you're a hospitalist. So you can like pick up shifts or weeks at a time here and there. Whereas if you had a nine to five office that you're in private practice, it would probably, I mean, you'd have to close your office for huge chunks of time that just wouldn't be sustainable. So do you think people don't do it because it's not quote unquote worth it to them. I think there's so many reasons people don't do it. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorne. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash you slash dabbleco and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorne.com slash you like the letter U slash dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, so for, for U.S. Congress, I actually will have to resign my job if I win, when I win. Um, you do? Because you can't have an, yes, it's a full-time job. And the salary is, you know, a healthy salary, very similar actually to my salary as a pediatrician. Um, but for, you know, like the folks who are serving in Columbia at this, in the state house level, those are part-time jobs with very low pay. And those folks do have to juggle their law practice or their realty well, yeah. business while they're also serving at the state house. But for Congress, it will be a full-time job. But being a hospitalist has made the campaign easier because like you were saying, I don't have a panel of patients who's depending on me as their primary care doctor. I can work in the hospital when I'm available and then I can switch to campaign mode when I'm off the hospital. And obviously, you know, the patients of Charleston are none the wiser about that. But yeah, I think there's so many reasons. Like it's an incredibly intimidating thing to do to just jump in and run for office at any level. So many of us, especially with a healthcare background, we don't learn about this stuff in school. We're not educated on how this process works. We're not encouraged to consider doing it. No, clearly. I and didn't even know you have problem. to quit your job. Like we, <laughs> right. I mean, and I've learned so much that I didn't know just 18 months ago. Um, and that's the problem. And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, you know, you got to be a part of the the club, you know, you have to work your way up in the county party and the state party. And I think a lot of people think that that's how it works. That's not how I did it. Um, but there are many obstacles for people to run for office at any level. And that is a great detriment to the type of people who run for office. And, you know, so many people who are, you know, maybe independently wealthy or retired, they can do it more easily than people who are in our stage of life with young kids and careers can do it. And that's why we have a really high mean age of Congress right now. And that's why we have more grandfathers than mothers serving in Washington. And I think that we need to make it more accessible, but I think more of us doing it and sort of paving the way and spreading the word about what it's really like, you know, I, I hope that more people will be encouraged to consider it. Yeah, it's it's um, got to be daunting, and I I I can't imagine you know trying to take that on, and then you know feeling like I'm sure there's an imposter syndrome that comes with it when you're the new guy you know in town, or um, it's yeah. So kudos, gosh, thanks for thanks for doing that for all of us. Um, so and one thing too, I wanted when I was going through your website and looking at just kind of different things on your platform. And you were talking about expansion of potential expansion of Medicaid for with that Medicaid for children or like Medi Medicaid, were you talking about Medicaid, Medicare in general, or did you mean Medicaid specifically, like for children specifically? So really both, you know, expanding Medicaid is a state issue and South Carolina mm -hmm. is one of few states who haven't expanded Medicaid. So I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't have a say in that, but I believe it is the right thing to do for us to expand Medicaid. And that of course would benefit many children in my state and many, you know, um, folks living in poverty. And what I think people who don't work in the healthcare system don't understand is those patients still do get care in emergency situations, and that is considered unfunded care, that then we are subsidizing right. through our right. private insurance because the hospital has to make up those losses. So having more people in any given state insured benefits everyone and should lower the premiums for everyone in the state. And certainly you can argue that healthcare is a human right, so we should provide access to quality health care for everyone. So I do believe very strongly that we need to be expanding Medicaid, but that is a state issue. My ideas for Medicare 
are that we, you know, I think my parents are both on Medicare now and I've seen the way it works and it's been, it's working really well for them. And it's, um, Katie Porter actually was just talking about the sort of overhead of the Medicare program compared to um, private insurance companies. And mm-hmm. Medicare is a very cost efficient health insurance program. They don't spend a lot of money that isn't directly related to the care that is provided under Medicare. Whereas private insurance companies spend a lot of money on stock buybacks and money for shareholders and, you know, advertising their insurance products. And so I do believe that Medicare is a efficient, effective health insurance program. And I don't think we're ready to just jump to like expanding, you know, Medicare for all. That would be a huge shift in this country. But mm-hmm. I do think things like Medicare for Medicare for all who want it. So if you if your job does not provide great health insurance or you're, you know, self-employed and you you can't get affordable health insurance, maybe you can opt into Medicare. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we lower the rate, the age of eligibility, so it's not 65 anymore, but it's 60, and we slowly sort of get more folks on Medicare. Mm-hmm. And as that happens, that will increase competition in the private insurance market, and they'll be forced to, you know, maybe trim some fat and make their their insurance programs a little more cost efficient. And I do think that that would be a really positive step in the right direction because I care for underinsured children. Um, you know, on the adult side, my husband is a adult physician and he cares for many uninsured patients. And yeah. what I think so many lay people don't realize is that we are paying for that. You know, that care gets paid for and it gets paid for by people who have private insurance. Right. Well, my question about that really, too, I, when I think about it, what concerns me, you know, as a provider, just knowing the reimbursement from Medicaid and Medicare is I don't want to say terrible because there are times that it's it's on par on pace with everything else but how do you I don't so I don't know who one I don't know who sets the reimbursement rates for Medicaid and Medicare like no idea maybe I learned that in fourth grade social studies again and I should know these things but I don't and so how do you incentivize you know for like for physicians and, and APPs who are saying but yeah I'm in private practice and I can't afford to take more Medicaid patients because they pay me $8 for a well visit, you know, what, what, who's setting that? Whose deal is that? Can you, can you fix that? I mean, so for, (laughs) it's so complex, right? And I won't sit here and pretend to be an expert by any means, but anything related to Medicaid is set by the state. So those rates are negotiated at the state level. Medicare is more, is at the federal level, but you're right. I mean, I've talked to some, I've talked to so many of my friends and colleagues who are in private practice and, you know, they can only afford to have a certain proportion of patients on with Medicaid in their practice or, and it's, that's not sustainable, right? You know, we have to have these public insurance programs for our society to function. And so we have to find a way to make it feasible for folks in private practice to serve patients regardless of their insurance type. So I think we have so much work to do to fix the healthcare system in this country. Yeah. And, and people may not realize, I mean, yes, you're, when you're in private practice, it's different. You eat, eat what you kill, but now even, in the academic setting, you know, we've all, for the most part, been moved to an RVU system, which is kind of the same thing, just different semantics where, you know, you have to keep a certain level of essentially production. Um, and if you're at a, a hospital that gets, you know, that takes Medicare and Medicaid, it's, it's different because um, RVUs are based. Anyway, that's a really complicated system. But 
but yeah, I just, I think about all the, the people in America that are in, in private practice, like, yeah, I can't, can't really afford to take these folks. And you think about small towns, there's not a big academic center in, in these, all these small towns. And so their choice is private practice. And you just hope and pray that that person takes, you know, Medicaid or Medicare so that they can actually get care. Um, and it's really not fair to, you know, the particularly physicians who go into six figure debt, you know, to go to, to medical school and through residency. And I think there was a time when, you know, everybody looked at lawyers and doctors and just, they thought they were, you know, making a killing, which I, there, it was not in my lifetime of practicing, but, um, where you could just crush it. Um, but that's changed. And it, so now you have people not wanting to go into medicine because it might take them 30 years of their uh, entire career to pay off their medical school debt before they can even really start to save for retirement or whatever that looks like. And I don't think people realize how, how difficult of a decision that is to, to go into medicine now. I think you're exactly right. And I think this, what we're dealing with is a healthcare system that really was is designed around benefiting insurance companies and mm -hmm. pharmaceutical companies. And it's not designed specifically to benefit patients or healthcare providers. Right. And, you know, it's not this way in a lot of countries, but this is, this is the system that we have. And these are the results of the system that people like you're describing who live in rural areas can't access care without driving an hour and a half to see a doctor for a well child check or right. some subspecialty care. And again, I think part of the problem is when healthcare policy is being written, and definitely the people who are voting on healthcare policy, they don't have my expertise or your expertise. They don't know what it's like yeah. um, and what real patients are facing and what we are, real providers are facing. And that's why, you know, one of the things I've learned since I launched this campaign is there is such a deficit of folks with a healthcare background in government at all levels. And we saw the ramifications of that with the way we immediately injected politics into the COVID response because mm -hmm. there weren't enough doctors in the room to make the right decisions. And, you know, we've seen it so many times since then. We, we've seen it with the all of the um, anti-trans legislation that has been propagating across the country where we're, you know, criminalizing doctors or in, in Texas criminalizing parents for providing gender-affirming care that is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics to young transgender patients. And then now, you know, I know you've already talked a lot about abortion, but that's what we're seeing with Roe v. Wade. You know, yeah. we're seeing potentially criminalization of healthcare providers for providing evidence-based care that has been the standard of care for decades. And to me, from my current perspective in the thick of all of this, I think that is a direct result of the fact that there aren't enough doctors engaged, doctors and all healthcare providers engaged in policymaking, in voting, in supporting candidates, in running for office at all levels, because we just we we think we think there's something noble about being apolitical in our field. I think, but it it is crystal clear to me that there is a direct link from politics and policy to the patients I care for in the hospital every day. Mm, gosh, well, I know that um, everybody loved hearing this today. I I was definitely fascinated by everything and I uh, need to get out my social studies book and read a little bit more. Um, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super busy and we'll really look forward to seeing, you know, what happens and hopefully there will be some change and South Carolina maybe can catch up a little yeah. bit. 
Yes. And thank you for having me on. And like, I know that this is not a political podcast, but I really do think that we find ourselves in this moment of urgency. Those of us who have young children or grandchildren, I think we really have to think about and take a look at what's going on in the world right now in regards to climate change and voting rights. And now, you know, women's reproductive rights and really, really think about what kind of world we want for our kids Mm -hmm. and think about ways we can dial it up a little bit and get a little bit more engaged in the process and educate ourselves a little bit more about the candidates and what's going on in the, you know, local, state and federal level. I think we owe it to our kids to do that. So I hope that folks who are listening, you know, think about that a little bit and think about what's at stake um, with our upcoming elections in November. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. And guys, as always, if you liked this podcast, please rate it, share it, subscribe. That's how I continue to get good guests and I will see you next week.